Good morning. What a joy it is to be with you and to hear these young men preach and teach so well. I couldn't be more gratified than to know that this is the next generation we passed the ministry to a few years ago. And um, so I, I, I thank you for being here this morning to worship the Lord and pray that you'll turn your attention to the Word of God with me and uh, let's uh, let Him speak to us. This morning in, in this passage, we're dealing with the, the kingdom of God and the gospel of God's kingdom, as Jesus would put it. And in doing so, we want to think about the Lord's sovereign messianic authority that He demonstrated in his life. You know, it says after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. This was a pivotal point in history. It's historic to be sure. And, and Jesus comes not in a time of ease, not in a time of security, but in suffering. You know, uh, theologians mark his coming, this fulfillment of time, with Jesus' baptism, his, his beginning, his ministry with his baptism. And then, of course, his wilderness temptation. But here, with John being arrested, this is, he's coming into adversity to begin his ministry when he comes into Galilee. So he, his ministry is inaugurated in adversity, and his preaching demanded an immediate response. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Carl t- emailed me or texted me and, and said, you know, I'm preparing for your coming and uh, do you have any particular hymns that you would like for, for me to uh, choose? And so I, I thought, well, not really. This is what my passage is about. Just get something that fits that. But later on, I was thinking about Jesus and his uh, coming and presenting the gospel of the kingdom and saying that the time is near and, and having this urgent message, this urgent call. And I thought, well, I wish I had ask Carl to choose a song, I Will Arise and Go to Jesus. And even this morning sitting down here, I thought, boy, I would really, I wish I knew the words that I could quote. And, and that's the first song Carl queued up for us to sing, I Will Arise and Come to Jesus. Jesus' preaching, when he begins his ministry, demands an immediate response. And I want to get the attention of all the children and young people and say to you, I know that when you hear the gospel, the gospel of our salvation, the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus being the king, the Messiah, you're tempted to think, well, I I need to think this over because this could really change my life. And that song, in one of the verses, I took a picture of the screen. It says, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. And Jesus comes proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled. This time that as Jared taught this morning, that began being foreshadowed all the way back to Genesis. And in so many different ways points to Jesus coming. Jesus says, I am here and I in me is the kingdom of God. And the, t- the fullness of time is, 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 has come And he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so he says, and there's this calling for a crisis of decision. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. When we 
used to go from this church to Romania. Our, some of our people who were here went over 20 times over a period of 20 years. They went to Romania and they would go through the streets there and give the gospel. And the Romanians uh, would make fun of you <clears throat> because they were all Orthodox and they referred to us evangelicals as repenters because we told people they needed to believe in Jesus. They needed to repent and believe in Jesus. And here Jesus is telling the very pe people that he speaks to first, who are Jews, he tells them to repent and believe in the gospel. And I ask myself, what's he telling them to repent of? Of course, they don't think that they're sinners. And of course, he's telling them to repent of the way they've twisted the law and, and formed their own situational ethics and have bent things so as to do what they want and to abuse people and exploit people and be unkind and be unfaithful. Of course, he wants them to repent of that. But he also wanted them to repent of their presuppositions about the kingdom. You know, they, they wanted a revolutionary to come, a Messiah who would come and be a revolutionary and, and who would make Israel great again. They wanted someone to come in and take over and really just obliterate all of their opponents, all of their, uh, the, the, the Romans and the Herodians. They wanted them done away with. But Jesus comes and he tells them that you need to repent and you need to believe the gospel. Now we think about the gospel today in very uh, reduced terms. We think of it in terms of the four spiritual laws or some kind of how to have peace with God track just with basic propositions. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Got this problem, you're a sinner and separated from God. God sent the solution to his son Jesus. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. Believe in him, accept him, be baptized, and you're in. That's great. And now go join a church and be a good person. But it was much more than that. The gospel of the kingdom starts with Messiah arriving, and Messiah and Christ are, are the words that mean anointing, anointing to be a king, and he's over a kingdom. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we're wanting God's will to be done in our very lives. We're wanting him to take over. And we are the very territory over which he is to reign. And so these Jews were wanting a geopolitical revolutionary who would restore to them what they want, the glory of their geopolitical system. And that wasn't Jesus. Jesus came as a suffering servant referred to by Isaiah, and he came in hiddenness, and they wouldn't really understand his mission until the cross. So this morning, what I want us to do is look at Jesus' sovereign authority as he demonstrates it in calling his disciples, and you want you to see their radical response, their immediate radical response. And young people, I want you to see that, how these people respond radically to Jesus' call. And, and then I want us to see his sovereign authority as he goes into this adverse re religious environment to teach and the authority that he has, his word, and how he uh, preaches about the kingdom. And then I want us to look at how Jesus confronts the domain of darkness and, and uh, disease and his authority. First of all, let's look at his authoritative call to discipleship. He's walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, 
And he sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, and they're casting a net into the sea for their fishermen. Now, obviously, he sees them, <coughs> excuse me, and he knows all about them, and he sees what they're doing, and, and he knows they're preoccupied, and he knows who they are and what they are. They are fishermen. And when I think about them casting that net, <coughs> and I, I like fishing. Everybody that knows me knows I like fishing. And if, unless you want to pay the high dollars for, for bait, you can get a cast net. And it's not dissimilar to what those guys would use. And it, but it's really an art. You gather it up. It's a circle. It has weights all the way around it. And it has kind of a hole, small hole in the middle with a rope that would gather it together. But you hold part of it in your teeth. And then you take this skirt and you do like you're throwing a discus. And you get a rhythm and... When you first try it, you just get all tangled up in it. But a person who can really do it, he can cast that net and make it completely spread out. And it just, in a whisper, just hits that water. And it falls down where the fish are. And then you pull that rope and it gathers it up and it gets them. And these fishermen, they, they know how to cast that net. They know how to watch the birds who are watching the bait fish who are getting after the big, the big fish are chasing them, and they know how to do it. And Jesus sees these men, and they're involved in the family business. They're fully employed. They're in business. They're currently occupied. They're very busy. And you would expect Jesus, since he's trying to gather a group of leaders, to say, hey, I'm over here. Sorry to interrupt you. But when you get time, when you're going to take your break, Come on over here and let's talk. I want to propose something to you. I'm, I'm starting this, this uh, movement, and I'd like to get some guys to come with me. No, he doesn't do that. Jesus, with his sovereign authority, sees them, and he says to them, follow me. This, I found this really interesting. I'm a little bit uh, detailed in my focus on some things having to do with language. And this word, follow me, first of all, the first word is, is hard to translate. There's not a lot written about it. It's, it, it happens a few times in the New Testament, but it, it, it is a verb, but it kind of means get up and come, but mainly it's an interjection saying, hey! And then he says, behind me. The Greek language has a, a good cluster of prepositions. And Jesus could have chosen any of them, and the language is inflected well enough to where he can be very specific and he can just eradicate all ambiguity. And he says, Follow me. He could have said, Come with me. Or he could have said, Go out in front of me. I'm, I'll be right behind you. But he says, Follow me. Follow me. We live in a day and time where Christians wear big crosses and do ungodly things the way they're talking abusively to other people and they're, 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 they lie and do all manner of things and they say, I'm a Christian. I'm a God-fearing Christian. But they go out ahead of Jesus and they do things that He doesn't have anything to do with. They, wear, they, they hold up placards that say, Jesus, big, big signs that say, Jesus. And, and they do all kinds of ungodly things. 
in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, behind me, follow me. He didn't say, go out in front of me. He didn't even say, come with me. He says, behind me. And every now and then, Jesus had to use that same phrase to correct people. He says, if anyone is going to follow me, and it's the same Greek phrase, opisomu, behind me, if any man is going to follow me, come behind me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Well, see, that's just not very good thinking for these people who want Jesus to come and make Israel great again. Look, we can, we can help you with just this, Jesus. This idea of you being a sufferant servant, being quiet and meek and humble and, and hidden. Now, we need to get you out front. We need to go do things for you. We need to help you become a, a cultural revolutionary. Jesus says, my kingdom. You need to repent of your presuppositions about the kingdom of God. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom isn't something that you take over and establish by force and abuse. He says, behind me. And he says, and you get behind me and I'll make you to become. He didn't, he didn't say it's just going to be instantaneous. You get behind me. You follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. Well, one of the reasons why we are not as effective being fishers of men is because we haven't gotten behind Jesus, taking up our cross, being willing to suffer for the name of Christ, accepting as normal our disenfranchisement from society. We're just saying, we need a Savior who's going to be a revolutionary who will make our situation great again. Well, that's Anyway, it's amazing to me that it says immediately they left their nets and followed Him. This word immediately is really overused in Matthew, you know. It's almost like the word inconceivable in the movie Princess Bride, you know. The guy just keeps saying it. It, it happens 52 times in the whole New Testament and 49 of those times happen in the book of Mark. So they say Mark is a real fast-moving gospel because he keeps saying, and immediately. But really, this is what happened. These guys didn't reflect. They didn't say, well, you know, we got the business. And if we leave, it's going to leave people in the bind. And, and everybody knows that fishing on the Sea of Galilee is really a dependable source of income. And it's lucrative. And and uh, so, and I mean, really, who knows if he's really the Messiah and who is he? I mean, he's, he's over there on the shore. Who is he telling us, follow him? But they do follow him and they do it immediately. And the same is true of James and John. They go a little, he goes a little bit further and he sees James and John. He sees them and he sees what they're doing. They're in the boat, mending their nets and he interrupts their life. Yeah, now young people, I'll tell you, he will do that. He will interrupt your life in the most glorious way. And he says to them, to, he calls to them, and they leave their father 
in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him immediately. Um, Jesus says in John, my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. And if you're here today and you haven't come to faith in Christ yet, and you've just got all this consideration, you know, well, these, there are these other religions, and, and, you know, and people are not really believing the Bible to be literally the Word of God anymore, and I don't know. I'm going to tell you something. If the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, is saying to you, follow me, to follow Jesus, if you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. Follow Jesus. And but his, his call to his disciples was truly an effectual call. There was sovereign authority in it that caused it to happen. I mean, they didn't even think about it. They didn't think philosophically or, or situationally or, or theologically. They just came because they just knew and he caused it to happen with them. And I believe that if the Lord is calling you to salvation, you'll do the same. I believe you'll just begin to follow. But look at him teaching in the synagogue. You know, the synagogue, you would think, since it was kind of a franchise of the temple, and they were, you know, there were lots of them. There's one in Capernaum. And uh, immediately on the Sabbath, which is very significant, it was on the Sabbath that Jesus would go into the synagogue and do very provocative things like healing people on the Sabbath. He goes in here in this antagonistic territory. The synagogues in the book of Mark and the scribes in the book of Mark are almost always seen as antagonistic to Jesus, as ironic as that is. We think about how could that possibly be? They've got all of this history, all of this theology, all of this Old Testament knowledge and, and, and all of this ritual, and all this tradition. How could they be antagonistic to their own Messiah? Well, it's happening in churches today. People have their pursuit of pleasure and their fear of rejection by other people. And so many people are really antagonistic to the gospel. They really are. But Jesus goes in and he's teaching, and people are astonished at his teaching. And it's not like this astonishment, like you go to um, Disney World or something, or, and you see great things created and great special effects of this or that, and you go, oh, wow, isn't that amazing? Or, or even to go into Europe and see beautiful things and old buildings, and you go, oh, isn't that amazing? This was a startling kind of amazement. Two different words that are used of their amazement. But it's, 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 they're more than just astonished. They were, they're startled by it. And they were astonished because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Now, the scribes were held in highest regard by the Jews. I mean, they were experts in the law. They were seen as professorial. They were seen as uh, lawyers. They were seen as the people who 
would give the final word on interpretation and on ethics. And when people met them on the street, they showed deference to them. When they came into the synagogue, they gave them the best seats. I mean, they were, they were seen as higher than even the high priests in most situations. In fact, the, the Sanhedrin was made up primarily of scribes. But they didn't compare to Jesus. Jesus went in the synagogue and he taught the word of God. And he is God. And so he wasn't confused about what it said, what it meant, or how it applied. And when he spoke it, he spoke it with divine, sovereign authority, and it startled these people. It absolutely startled them. And then while he's there, he encounters in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And the man cries out saying, what, will you, uh, what have you to do with us, O Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Later on in this passage, it says that Jesus was casting out demons and he wouldn't let them speak. Here it says, I know who you are, but there it says they knew him. And you just think about angels. Before they fell, they were 24-7 preoccupied with worshiping and serving God. And so they knew who Jesus was. In fact, they knew Him. And they knew that He would eventually destroy them. And Jesus rebukes them and tells them to be quiet and come out of the man. And the unclean spirit convulsing Him and crying out with a loud voice came out. And all the people here again, they're amazed. They're amazed. And they say, what is this? A new teaching. A teaching with authority. You know, this matter of the gospel of the kingdom, this matter of repenting and believing the gospel, this matter of following Messiah is not a proposition. It's not an offer. It's a call. I, I know, I know that if you are being called by God, you know what I'm talking about right now. So don't wait. Just come to Jesus. Take up your cross and follow Him and let Him interrupt your life and let Him do it for the rest of your life. Because when you come to faith in Christ, you are part of the territory over which He reigns. And He is King and He has sovereign authority over us. And at once, His fame spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. But then he leaves the synagogue, still the Sabbath, and he enters the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John in their house. Simon and Andrew's house must have been close to the synagogue somewhere. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And so they come to Jesus and they say, she's really sick. There's no antibiotics, there's no aspirin. You know, um, her body's fighting the illness, the virus, whatever it is that's causing the fever. And they are compassionate and they come to Jesus and He's compassionate. And there's just power just in His presence. There's power in His presence. I believe there's uh, 
sovereign authority power right here with us today because you've gathered in his name and you're sincere about it. And he came and he took her by the hand. There's a, a personal touch there that has so much power to it. You know, I'm, my wife, everybody that is here that knows me uh, knows that my wife is a physician. She's a family practice doctor. And for, I, she became a doctor in uh, you know, 1984 when she graduated from med school. And she was a, a consummate physician. Um, her, her colleagues really respected her. And, and uh, her personality and her f- focus on the care of her patients was hard on her because it made her leave early in the morning, get home late at night and do charts. And, but part of the problem was that she looked her patients in the eye and she listened to them. And she touched them. And she was personal, personable with them. Um, in all of those years of her practicing medicine, nobody ever even thought about suing her because they absolutely loved her. That human touch. Jesus goes to Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And you know, he just takes her by the hand. And all of a sudden, that fever leaves her. That fever departs. And he restores her not only to strength and health, but to purpose. And she begins to serve. You know, uh, some of you, you can be disabled by trauma. You can be incapacitated by tragedy. You can just have um, kind of a debilitating sorrow. But when Jesus is at work in your life, He can restore you to emotional health and purpose. And so I would encourage you to let His authority work in your life. Look at, again, there's kind of a summary and a repeat of Jesus healing and casting out demons. And there was a difference. There was a difference in those who had just your normal run-of-the-mill illness and others who had illnesses that were caused by demons. That evening at sundown, you know, when when the people are no longer bound by the Jewish Sabbath and they're able to carry their loved ones to Jesus, they know where He is and they bring to him, all who are sick and impressed by or oppressed by demons, and the whole city is gathered around at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew him. James Edwards, a New Testament theologian, says. Uh, The questions about Jesus' identity come from the human side. But ironically, the answers come in part from the demonic side. 
because they know who he is. They know he's the son of God. And and this command to silence seems to frustrate the very publication of the gospel, the, the kingdom of God for which he's come. Why is that so? He says, well, first on a practical and strategic level, it was necessary for Jesus to silence the messianic utterances about himself since these carried connotations of military deliverance. He knew that if word spread that he was Messiah, they would want to make him an earthly king who would make Israel great again. And and not only were such connotations inappropriate to his mission, but publication of the title Messiah would have invited swift intervention from the Roman occupation. Moreover, Jesus rejects any announcement of his person and mission by demons opposed to God's kingdom. Kind of like that, that young lady in the uh, book of Acts who follows Paul about and says, listen to these men, they're men of the most high God. They show you the way to salvation, listen to them. And she keeps saying that and they turn around and cast a demon at her because the endorsement of a demon is invalidation of the, of the gospel. And here Jesus doesn't want demons doing his work doing his announcement. But secondly, and most importantly, and this goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago, Jesus came identified more with the servant of the Lord who's spoken of in Isaiah and in the Psalms, the suffering servant. Then he was identified with David, then he was identified with Abraham or Moses or Samuel. Uh, His primary identity is a suffering servant of the Lord. And they couldn't get that. They just couldn't get that. And neither can we. We want to not follow behind this suffering servant. We want to go out in front and say, I'm going to do this for you, Jesus. I'm going to do, take part in a revolution, Jesus. I'm going to help be a cultural warrior for Jesus. And I, I've got my rights and I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to defend, you know, and all this bravado and abusive talk and all that. And Jesus, the suffering servant, says, O peace, O me, behind me. If any man is going to follow me, he's got to take up, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, because he's a suffering servant. And nobody would really get it who Jesus was until the crucifixion. And then a Roman soldier says, Surely this was the Son of God. After his resurrection, the dots became connected and people began to see the nature of Messiah and His sovereign authority. This morning, I, uh, I want to say to everyone here that we still have this urgent call to radical discipleship. No reservations. We have an urgent call to radical discipleship. No hesitation. If Jesus, if you know Jesus, He is the shepherd of the sheep. He is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He says, my sheep know me. My sheep know my voice. My sheep follow me. That's what we're supposed to do. We're to follow in humility. There is to be a mystique about us. 
the world can't make heads or tails of us. What's up with them? Why would they suffer? What's in it for them? Why would they do that? We're to follow Him now. We're to follow and, and have our minds expanded on the gospel. It's so much more. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's more than just getting to go to heaven when you die. It's becoming subjects in this kingdom. And, you know, Paul kind of hints at this. This morning we were talking about um, Jesus coming to reverse the curse of the fall. And he certainly did do that. Paul says in Romans 5, 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. 5.21 says that so as sin reigned, these are words, kingdom words. It's actually the same Basileia's kingdom. Basilua is to reign. As sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul says in 6.12 of Romans, let not sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its passions. And then in 6.14 he says, for sin shall not have dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. And in Colossians 1.13 Paul says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He is Messiah. He is the Christ. He is anointed. He is anointed to be king. And when He came, He established His kingdom. He began His kingdom. And we have uh, we are living in the last days since Pentecost. We've been in the last days. And we are to, to be subject to the king. And we're to be subject to him when he says, all authority is given to me. Therefore, go in, to all the world. Preach the gospel. Make disciples of all men. He has given that authority to us to do evangelism and discipleship. And he promised that he would be with us to the end of the age. And in that context, he's with us still with that accompanying authority. He gives us the keys of the kingdom to exercise church discipline, to recognize when people are truly saved so as we're not putting lost people in membership. He gives us authority for teaching to tear down strongholds, to, to address the doctrines of demons. And every day, we need to be repenting. Good reformers, are, uh, reformed people are always repenting. And we see that we're wrong. And with this idea of kingdom, we need to be repenting and letting God show us what the kingdom is about. Um, so, would you pray with me, please? Our Father, I uh, just thank you for your marvelous plan. I thank you that Jesus
the last Adam, has come to reverse the curse that was brought on the earth through the first Adam. I thank you for that. I thank you that as Christians, people who have been made alive in union with Christ, I thank you that you have placed us in Him, that we are crucified in Him, that all that we were apart from Jesus has been buried in Him, that in union with Christ you have made us alive, raised us from the dead, and even seated us in the heavenlies. Lord, the last thing you want us to be is deceived. I pray for us in this room. I pray for churches all over America. I pray for churches all over the world. I pray for their pastors that we will think clearly about who we are as believers and what the nature of the kingdom is that we're in. Lord, that we will be citizens of heaven, that our citizenship will be there. And Lord, that we will relate well to you and relate well to the church and to present a good testimony to the world. And that we'll do all of that by following Jesus, by denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus. Lord, may your Spirit cause it to be so through your sovereign authority. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.